Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Avik Day, Head of Energy and Resources at CPPIB. During today's episode, Avik talks about the secular change that the industry is going through and the unprecedented complexities that management teams and investors are having to navigate. Sustainability is the key word of today's episode, and Avik talks about being an investor in a carbon economy in a world that is decarbonizing, outlining the measures required to protect asset value, generate free cash flow, and develop the resilience required to withstand market volatility. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi Avik, thanks very much for doing this today. My pleasure. We always like to start off, uh, as we have done in previous episodes, by giving our listeners a bit of a background and setting the scene. You have a a long established reputation and background in the industry, CPPIB, one of the the best known funds in the industry worldwide. So I'm sure you need no introduction, but for the few that may not be familiar with yourself, do you reckon you could just give us a bit of background about yourself, where you grew up, your studies, how and why you got into the industry, and, and just a bit of an overview of your career before you joined CPPIB? Be my pleasure, Ben. I've been in the energy business my whole career. I started out at Alberta Energy Company, actually one of the predecessors to Ingana, working in the international division. So I've spent time as a financial analyst and a petroleum economist working EMP assets all over the world. And from there have done stints in investment banking, private equity, as an entrepreneur, building an EMP company in Latin America. And then now here at CPPIV, I joined in 2000. 2014 to, to start the energy and resources business. And how did you get into energy and resources? Where did that interest come from? Was it a natural progression from your studies or did you identify that early on as an area that you like to get into? Well, I would love to sit here and tell you it was something profound and I had great insight on what energy would do over the next 20 years when I was graduating college. But the truth is, I had a innate desire to go see the world and be in international business, not totally knowing what that meant. And for me, when I was growing up in Calgary and graduating university, the opportunities to go do international were really in and around the oil and gas community. In the late 90s, five of the 10 largest independent EMP companies were all headquartered in Calgary and they were doing great things all over the world. So my opportunity to go global was joining Alberta Energy Company who was building a international portfolio of oil and gas assets. And one of the great stories I have, one of my dear friends and mentors, Steve Bell, who was my partner in Remora Energy, he was president of AEC International at the time I was graduating. And he had a great analogy for me on why I should go into the oil and gas business and not go into this thing called tech in the late 90s. And the way he described it was, if you think about business and a chessboard, in the oil and gas business, the world is the chessboard, and each of the pieces on that chessboard are interlinked. Any move you make or any move you don't make are dependent upon each other. And the oil and gas business is one of those few businesses that you get to play on a global playing surface, the world. So as someone with a burning desire to go be in a global business, that was a great selling feature. No, absolutely. And you alluded to joining the natural resources, oil and gas industry, as opposed to the tech industry. It's funny because if you look at today, 
of course, the tech industry is one of the fastest growing spaces and a lot of sort of the younger talent would perhaps be eyeing up that space now as one of the fastest growing spaces, highest potential spaces. Do you think the energy industry will focus on the oil and gas industry, but the energy industry as a whole still has that same lure and appeal to the younger generation, new talent coming in? Or do you think the industry's changed? Of course, the two are interlinked. The energy industry is now more and more dependent on the technology industry for, for cost savings and cost efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, operational performance and improvements. So the two are arguably interlinked, but do you think the industry still has that same appeal, the same lure that it did when you joined today? I think without question, the industry is different today than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and 50 years ago. We've historically been categorized as a high growth industry, one that's meeting growing demand, and one that was increasingly supply constrained. You know, as we sat here in in 2000, for example, you know, peak oil was the theory that was rampant at the time. And for the first time in history, we're now sitting in a world where we are no longer supply constrained. We're a demand-driven business. So it's absolutely different today than it was 20 years ago, but different doesn't necessarily mean bad. Yes, FANG is a huge part of the overall index. Growth is associated with technology and innovation and software, but all of those things that are being enabled by innovation and technology in that realm is also now going to be applied in the oil and gas business. So although we may not face the long-term growth potential like we saw over the past couple generations, the ability to apply that and optimize and maximize outcomes and play in a world aggressively moving towards energy transition and net zero is incredibly compelling. It's just that there isn't precedent today for what we're the journey we're about to embark on. No, absolutely. It's really interesting that the points you raised there, and I think you alluded to just some of the challenges that the industry is facing today in the energy transition, the, the path to net zero, which is becoming more and more center stage or nowadays. So with that in mind, I mean, your careers in the energy sector spans back 20 years. What would you say is the biggest energy industry related challenge you've come up against during that time. Are we going through that now? There are some unprecedented challenges that the industry is facing now that perhaps 20, even 10 years ago, people involved in the industry, senior execs would never have imagined coming up against. What's the biggest energy industry related challenge that you've come up against during your time in the sector? And, and how does today compare with the biggest challenges you've come up against? As a student of the industry, I've, I've studied the history and our business has an incredible and storied history dating back over a century. For my career, I started in 98. So I saw the collapse in 98, obviously GFC, 14 to 16, and then now. Without question, the greatest industry challenge we faced is the one we're in right now because it's the confluence of multiple factors. It's not only supply wars between Saudi and Russia. It's not only response to a pandemic, but in addition, it's climate action. It's understanding the price of carbon. It's the U.S. becoming the marginal supplier in the world, where for the better part of 40 years, 
OPEC had been the marginal capacity dictating marginal price for a barrel of oil. And then on top of that, with energy transition, you've got natural gas displacing coal, renewables deployment happening at a higher penetration rate for new capacity than anything we've seen. So today, the complexity of the business that we're managing, it's not just about extracting, processing, and getting it to a downstreamer or getting it to a generator in the instance of gas. It's you have to have a better and deeper understanding of the whole value chain today. And moving in that market and getting those critical skill sets and knowledge to be able to execute in a more complex world is what's going to set apart winners from losers. So that's why I think is the most difficult time we face as an industry. And are, are there any lessons that the industry and management teams of today are there lessons that they can learn from previous downturns from, say, 2014 to 16? Of course, I think, uh, again, something we keep hearing is that the industry is currently going through a structural change as opposed to a cyclical one. And that's an error that management teams should be wary of and investors alike should be wary of. There has to be that systematic structural change from within in order to come out stronger on the other side. And, and the investment approach, the investment model has to be different. So with that in mind, are there lessons that can be learned from previous downturns that can be applied today? And then what's new and what's different this time around? How do investors like yourself approach the new challenges, the complexity that you've just described of the industry today? How do you approach that to create value and, and emerge stronger on the other side in five years' time? Our business has shown incredible resiliency over a long period of time. If I think about just business in general terms, there's only three ways to make money. Increase revenue, reduce costs, and invest to grow the business, whether it's in new markets or vertically integrating or just expansion of existing businesses. So with that in mind, when you think about commodities, we have the added complexity of not being able to control the price of our product. So what we've been really good at over time is being able to demonstrate the resilience to manage through cycles, which historically have always fallen in four to six year time periods. The asset class has generally been an inflation hedge. We've all been trading in what's widely been U.S. dollar denominated commodities, and the business has been a capital hog. So on average, GNP companies would invest anywhere from 80 to 200% of their cash flow. You know, shale's obviously broken that mold with numbers a lot higher than 150%. But we always relied on that cyclicality to be able to normalize returns, whether it was return on capital employed, free cash flow yield, net backs, and then ultimately value creation through capital appreciation. So we can learn from past experiences around the resilience required to withstand volatility. That's point one. Point two is we are fundamentally in a different world today than we have been in the past. So what you referred to as structural change or secular change, there's no question we are in that today. And the difference is, is what we would manage between a four to six year cycle, now we're managing to secular shifts in how the commodity is traded, how the supply stack is set, and where we see demand going over the course of the next 10 to 30 years. That's different. And so as we think about the resilience factor of how do we protect asset value, how do we generate cash flow and ultimately earnings to be able to pay dividends 
and provide return of capital. We are all playing towards a sustainability factor for our business model, not just from an ESG perspective, but from a business perspective. The longer we can show that our business is resilient and able to generate free cash flow and able to provide dividends and withstand commodity price volatility, the more attractive those entities are ultimately going to be. And those are the ones that will ultimately be afforded the premiums relative to their competition. This is a big shift for the business overall. Absolutely. And I think you've really, really hit the nail on the head. And it's interesting to hear you allude to some of those changes in approach that management teams and investors alike are going to have to tackle heads on going forward. And I think that leads nicely into focusing more on your role specifically uh, within CPPIB and, and CPPIB's portfolio in general. Could you just maybe give us a bit of oversight as to what constitutes energy and just walk us through your portfolio? What are the different asset classes you're focused on right now? So I'm talking about the likes of exposure to upstream versus midstream versus downstream and even moving across as we talk about the energy transition to power and renewables. What is your current exposure and what What's the current asset class you're sitting on? So we've invested 10.6 billion of equity in Canadian dollars since 2015. And although it may seem normal, of course, in today's parlance, but our entire strategy since 2015 has been built around energy transition. And when we talked about it in 2015, it was really around leveraging our funds, comparative advantages of scale and flexible capital. And we felt strongly that enabled in order to do that, we should be investing in long-term assets that could withstand volatility. And we had strongly believed that energy transition was underway. And those assets that could have the withstand that volatility by being low on the cost structure, being long on duration, would position us best for that transition over a long period of time measured in decades and not quarters. Our portfolio today is really everything from what we call innovative technology and services, early stage investments in clean technology and those businesses that serve the industry more broadly in bringing technology, software, automation, carbon management to bear on existing traditional energy assets through conventional oil and gas, midstream and merchant power. Okay, so I suppose with that in mind and and just thinking about sustainability, if we look at the upstream EMP sector, the oil and gas industry as a whole, is it possible for the upstream EMP sector to fit into this sustainability bracket, to match this sustainability criteria and to fit into an energy transition model and position itself to generate value for 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, there's no denying that hydrocarbons are going to play an important role in supplying global energy demand for the foreseeable future. And that's certainly not going to go away overnight. But is it possible for upstream EMP assets and investments to be sustainable and, and meet that sort of sustainability criteria? Not only is it possible, it's an absolute imperative that the industry find a way to succeed in a world consumed by net zero mandates. We think there's a very strong story for the energy business, not just to embrace increasing policy, but frankly, stakeholder demand to be viable in a net zero world. And when we look at aggregate energy demand, we will hit peak oil demand sometime between late 2020s and 
early to mid 2030. However, as we've tested in the pandemic, we saw what minimum activity results in oil demand. You know, we were down 27 million barrels a day from 100 in early May, and that's when the world grind to a halt. But whether it's petrochemical demand, light duty vehicle demand, heavy duty vehicle demand, there is a floor to energy demand that will see through energy transition over the next 30 years. So ensuring that the industry has the right cost structure, has the right accountability framework from an ESG perspective, has the ability to not just manage net zero from a financial perspective, but from a physical capture and sequestration perspective is what's going to differentiate the business over time. And those that can do that and manage costs and generate free cash flow and demonstrate sustainability, there will be a place for them within the broader capital market universe. We see that as an opportunity, mostly because we don't see a path where traditional energy doesn't have an active and important role in the total energy slate over the next 30 years. Okay. Again, it sounds like there's opportunity here emerging within the hydrocarbon space. There's opportunity, sort of less capital at the moment should continue to create more opportunities for those that can raise it further down the line. It sounds like you've identified that opportunity. And as you say, it comes down to these cost structures, the accountability structure from an ESG standpoint, being responsible stewards of the capital, et cetera. But if done right, these opportunities will be able to attract capital and raise capital in the future. So what do companies need to do to convince investors like yourself of their ability to create future upside and deliver returns? And where do these opportunities lie? There are some assets which aren't going to be able to change their cost structures significantly enough to deliver the value that you're on about. There are some structures that aren't going to be able to meet these ESG requirements, ESG expectations. So with that in mind, with your approach to the upstream sector going forward for the next 5, 10, 15 years, where do you see these opportunities? What are the tier one assets that are going to catch your eye and which are going to justify you deploying your capital in the space? Well, I think there's a key point here, Ben, that we've got to go back towards, which is what got us here won't get us to where we're going. And the EMP model, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, I spent time as a petroleum economist and our business valuation has always been predicated on net asset value. How do you bring NAV forward? How do you optimize that NAV? And then how do you sell it for a premium to what NAV is today on my books for reserves versus capital? that going concern value for that enterprise. And what I'm fundamentally talking about now is that optimization of value creation for equity holders may not be in bringing NAV forward. It's making that trade-off of bringing forward NAV and demonstrating sustainability with a free cash flow yield. So I will take something that has a lower PVPI, longer reserve life, more manageable recycle ratio because of the certainty in which those cash flows will be delivered and its ability to withstand commodity price volatility. So that's fundamentally a different equation today because all of us that have been in the EMP business for our careers have traditionally looked for places where we could drill faster with more efficiency, get longer lateral lengths, and get better recoveries per well. And that was all with 
one objective, maximize rate, maximize NPV. And today, we're especially we've been doing amazing work in shale, and you've got really short R over Ps on these wells, the ability to withstand that volatility is lower because you're getting payout so quick. And so as we come out of the J curve on shale, and we get to a more manageable base decline rate on existing production, that sustainability of being able to deliver it with certainty over time uh, and having a sustainable net back to be able to do that, that's what we're ultimately looking for. So what that means for North America or the U.S. is you know later stage mature assets where you can go in and use first principles approach to business management, whether it's managing field level operating costs, whether whether it's you know optimizing maintenance capex, whether it's being better at plugging and abandoning, whether it's having an active carbon sequestration and capture strategy so you, your product can get a premium to the market, whether it's being better situated with downstreamers to be able to get your products to market, those are all elements that work towards that same outcome, driving towards sustainable free cash flow. Okay, it makes sense. And I think we've spoken a lot about, or you have spoken a lot about best practices and and how to accrue value through operational investment best practice. But again, I want to look specifically at the asset class, the resource underneath the ground. And I think you could say, coming back to what you were talking earlier about the energy transition, the SG pressures, the path to net zero, etc. Arguably, the global pandemic has intensified or it definitely has intensified the pressure on investors to be the driving force behind the energy transition and, and to use this downturn as an opportunity to build back greener. And I know looking specifically at, at CPPIB and, and your portfolio of companies, back in 2019, you entered into an agreement with Williams to create a $3.8 billion JV, expanding your exposure into the North American natural gas market. Now, I mean, at the time you said that this deal aligned with your growing focus on the energy transition. Going forward, again, we've touched on it slightly, but how is the energy transition shaping your oil and gas investment strategies and priorities? And how do you view gas or the role of gas going forward? Does the energy transition increase the value of gas in the longer term, as many label it as being the transition fuel and, and that bridge fuel as we fill the gap between how long it's going to take to get renewables, the wind farms, the solar farms of this world, to being competitive enough and attractive enough and developing them with sufficient scale to be able to actually provide the energy and the clean energy that the world demands. What role does gas have to play as a bridge fuel and and what does that mean for the long-term value of gas assets and how does that play alongside oil assets and and liquids rich assets? Whether we're investing in clean technology or EV power stations or conventional oil assets in Canada or international gas assets like we have in Ireland, we've had four key themes that have underpinned our energy strategy, and they're all commonly accepted. There's nothing profound in any of them, but I'll quickly go through them here because it underpins what we think about natural gas. First one is global energy is growing. We all know that, you know, our own estimates are what was 580 million terajoules in 2018 is going to grow to something between 
between 750 and 780 by 2050. Had there not been energy efficiency, had there not been policy on carbon, had there not been incredible progress made on the levelized cost of energy of renewables, you know, that number would have been probably closer to 1150 to be able to supply enough power, provide enough energy feedstock to a world that's going from 7 billion to 9 billion. So that's theme one. Theme two is energy infrastructure is going to dramatically shift where it's needed, how it's needed, and why it's needed over the course of the next 30 years. 97% of global energy demand is going to shift in jurisdiction or growth. That's all going to come from India, China, and Africa. And so all of those places are going to require materially different infrastructure than they had today. Third point is decarbonization. The world is going to decarbonize. I think what we thought in 2015 is not where we are today. To be frank, everything's come faster than we were expecting, which is a huge positive. Uh, this movement amongst capital markets, stakeholders, industry players in moving us towards the net zero has really brought the decarbonization conversation to the forefront. And how we all play in this market going forward is going to create an incredible opportunity in carbon capture and sequestration. I think over the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to be in a world that's probably capturing and sequestering anywhere from five to 10 gigatons a year. That's incredibly profound in how we ultimately work towards a two degree scenario. And then the last theme, which is uh, just as important as the first three is traditional energy still and absolutely matters. So how we can accomplish the physical capture and sequestration of emissions, how we can drive efficiency, and how we can deliver the end markets that ultimately need it is going to have a big impact on how the energy slate ultimately evolves over, over time. That leads to your question on natural gas. For us, to be able to do that, today 80% of energy demand is sourced from conventional hydrocarbons or fossils, oil, gas, and coal. In a two-degree scenario with effective carbon capture, we're going to have to figure out how to get those 10 gigatons in the ground. And the biggest way we can do that is by natural gas being feedstock for power generation. So taking molecules and turning them into electrons as the world continues to electrify, as the world continues to automate, natural gas, we see over the medium to long term as being an absolutely critical resource to doing that. So where you can capture natural gas at a viable marginal cost structure with enough duration and supply to justify that egress, we think the U.S. is going to continue to grow as an LNG supplier to the world. And being in a market that can balance that increasing demand market globally, we think is an attractive alternative. And I think as we continue to make advances in renewables, battery, distributed generation overall, we will continue to see merchant generation and natural gas feedstock for baseload power be very compelling over time. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot you've said there, which I would love to delve into. And, and I'm sure we could speak several more hours about what about several of the points that you've raised there. But I think... It's interesting that, I mean, you've spoken about the potential that natural gas has to play across the North American market. You've alluded to how the U.S. will continue to grow as an LNG supplier. It can balance out the global demand or natural gas demand from that perspective, which is really interesting. But I thought it was also interesting to hear about how you were talking about how energy infrastructure is going to dramatically shift 
in terms of where it's needed, how it's needed, why it's needed. You alluded to the likes of India, to the likes of China, to the likes of Africa as being areas where significant amounts of investment will be required to change the energy infrastructure and help those economies, those countries to meet their changing energy needs and growing energy needs. So I think with that in mind, I just wanted to get your take on your international outlook on the energy markets at the moment. I'm going to start with the question, then I'll come back to the question. Does the current environment provide an opportunity for investors to diversify their portfolios internationally? I know that your exposure is predominantly, I believe, across North America and Canada and the US, although I know you have, as you alluded to, the one gas investment offshore island. But we've been hearing from various investors from across our global network that investors are beginning to screen opportunities elsewhere. I mean, I was recently speaking with a couple of the investment banks based out in Singapore. They were saying they were beginning to see private equity funds, et cetera, screen opportunities over there now that historically profitable geographies such as the North Sea, such as Lower 48, have gone by the wayside. And they were referring to how regions like Asia hold nine of the 15 fastest growing economies in the world. It will be the largest energy consumer over the next 25 years. And many are touting the region to be one of the driving forces behind the economic recovery and demand recovery. And therefore, it is difficult to be an energy investor and not be thinking about Asia today. What's your reaction to this? How are you approaching the international markets? Does this downturn provide an opportunity to get a foothold in international markets and fast growing economies? Or is there still too much sovereign risk in those types of areas? Is, is it too challenging to enter there? And would you rather just remain committed to a market like the US, which you know so well and, and which still has so much potential and so much to offer? So yeah, coming back to the original question, does the current environment provide an opportunity for investors to diversify their portfolios internationally? Well, as a factor-based investor from a portfolio management perspective, and now I'm speaking of CPPIB as a whole and our ethos as an investor, we place great value on diversification. In the EMP space in particular, I think there's a couple elements to this conversation. We chose to focus early on in North America because we saw the opportunities. It was an area of poor competency for us. And as we legged into an active investment program, where we could do sole-led deals and you know partner with preeminent industry players, we just saw the depth of the opportunity set here as quite strong. As we've progressed and evolved our own program, we've now done our first deal, as, as you mentioned, offshore Ireland, acquiring the Corb field. And we do think there's opportunity. But I think it's also important to highlight that 70% of global energy supply from a fossil perspective is controlled by national oil companies outside of North America. And so the opportunity set for institutional investors or entrepreneurs or private equity right out of the gate is more limited than in more traditional places because access is harder. Having said that, we do think there will be opportunities for investors in specific jurisdictions who value diversification. And the interesting part is that the screening criteria is going to be the same as the one I outlined for the U.S., which is the commodity is underpinned by a global market. You have fiscal regimes that impose a cost structure on your barrel, ultimately, or scuff getting out of market. And you're going to contextualize 
that with the ability to put money in and get money out and demonstrate sustainability. So if I'm looking and hunting for EMP assets globally, I'm looking for something with a low cost structure, low sustaining capex run rate, high R over B, and resilience amongst a broad range of commodity prices. And in that effort, I think those that can find those assets that have been ignored over time or just haven't had first principles approach to technical innovation or optimization through cost and process improvements. I think that's where investors and management teams can find opportunities to make money. Absolutely. And how long will we start to see some of these international diversification efforts? And is that something that can be enacted right away now in the current low price environment? Or is that something that takes time to build up expertise and knowledge and, and understanding of a specific jurisdiction and specific region? Well, Ben, the answer to that question is what's your else's? <laughs> somewhat of a facetious response, but I think the reality of where we are today is we need to look out and understand what can support reinvestment and what can ultimately deliver alpha to the investor. So in a world where the bond markets are doing one to 4%, equity markets are doing six to 8%, real assets are doing anywhere from seven to 20%. The common investor is gonna have a threshold for E&D to wear that volatility and to price in what the new carbon economy is going to impart on the industry in terms of cost and accountability. And so when you put all of that into play, what's going to unlock this business is when we all have a view towards what the right cost of capital is, what the right return thresholds are for investors to hold this asset class. I think it's going to be pretty compelling over time because in a low interest rate environment, our ability to deliver that yield to our investors and not reinvest it for growth will ultimately make this an interesting asset class. It won't be for everyone, and it will likely be a smaller universe of investors that play. But for those that understand it, we believe it'll be compelling opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, Alec, I'm going to wrap it up there. It's, it's been great speaking with you. I feel like we've only scratched the surface on a wide range of points that have been raised, and it's a shame we can't delve into these deeper, but maybe that's a, a conversation we can continue later down the line. I really appreciate you sharing your views on the industry, your approach towards the industry, and I think just to wrap it up, I'll, I'll hand over to you for some closing comments on the next steps for the industry, the short to long-term outlook, a, a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in, and, and just some general thoughts to close on. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure to address the virtual community. We continue to be excited about energy transition and the investment opportunities that are going to come out of that. Traditional energy is going to play a huge part of this, and we look forward to working in that carbon economy in a world that's decarbonized. You know, those of us that are willing to embrace it and take a long-term view and really drive that change, this is going to be an exciting space to be in. It won't have the exciting growth associated with it like it did, but the opportunity to generate profit, to generate free cash flow, deliver value to investors, I think is a pretty compelling one. So thanks for the opportunity to chat. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to speak to Avik about any of the points or issues that he has raised over the course of this episode, or if you would be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities for CPPIB, 
then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you are interested in learning more about the ways that we can help your team by connecting with executives like AVIC, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.oilandgascouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy them. Thanks and see you next time.